This is One in 54, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 54 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning, I am thrilled to be able to speak with uh, somebody I've wanted to meet for a long time, Dr. Devin Unadkat. He's the Chief Medical Officer from Station MD. And we're going to get into all of what Station MD is and why it's uh, what its relation is to Anderson and to autism. But first, let me just welcome uh, you, Dr. Rudankat, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Eliza, thanks for having me. This is a, a great opportunity to talk about our practice and also um, sort of like a, a, a dream that we kind of conjured up about six years ago <laughs> and didn't realize how um, how much of a need there was for a service like ours. And, um, you know, I, I would say I think we're touching a lot of lives and really proud to actually do that. So thanks for allowing me to speak about it. Um, my name is Devin Unadkat. I'm uh, an emergency physician by training, so and I practice in uh, emergency departments near my uh, home, um, and I've been seeing patients for over 20 years or so in the acute care setting. So patients come in with acute problems and medical issues in the emergency department. Obviously, I you know take care of them, stabilize them, make sure they get better. Um, and uh, like I said, I've been doing that for 20 some odd years. And part of my practice, um, just by coincidence, is interacting with individuals with disabilities, you know. Um, and I quickly realized early in my career that this particular community has a many times difficulty um, getting access to quality primary care physicians and acute care physicians. And as a result, utilize the emergency department to gain access at extraordinary levels right yeah 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 beyond definitely. what they needed mm-hmm. yeah it's disproportionate to to the general population and um many times i see them come through the doors of the emergency department and um wait around for hours they miss their doses of chronic medications for seizures for behavior issues for you know blood pressure they don't get uh the, the you know they don't get their lunch on time their dinner on time um if they were to participate in any activities during the day, if they had work or job, they would miss all of these things mm-hmm. and essentially throw throw off their routine. And individuals with disabilities are, are, are and, and most people, quite frankly, are fixed to a routine. So when routines are, are um, disrupted, it really causes significant issues from a, a, a mental health standpoint, but also even from a physical health standpoint. And individuals with disabilities have a decreased ability to, A, number one, communicate with words, um, and number two, sometimes even understand what's really happening around them. And as a result, we may be able to bounce back from a day in the ER. It's a miserable time. Nobody really wants to go there or be there. Our patients generally won't be able to bounce back just as fast. Mm-hmm. And it'll take that much longer to kind of get back into their routine once they do get back home. Right. So when I was seeing these patients through the ED, I was like, well, geez, if I was just able to see you before you made the decision to come to the emergency department for this problem, whatever it is, I bet more than half of the time, I'd be able to keep you at home and just take care of you. I wish I was able to just, you know, you call me, I just jump in my car and go over to your um, home or residence or wherever it is um, and take care of you and, and be done with it. And, and you wouldn't have to deal with sitting in a noisy, loud, overcrowded, busy place um, and your routine wouldn't be disrupted. And I'd be able to take care of you in 10 minutes and be done. Mm-hmm. Um, that obviously wasn't practical. You know, I couldn't leave the ER and go. 
But one day, uh, myself and two of my partners, um, uh, we were just kind of talking about this issue. They're both emergency physicians, both having very similar observations of how we could provide better high quality care to individuals with disabilities. And uh, we founded Station MD. And essentially, we were like, well, you know, there's this thing called FaceTime and uh, teleconferencing, which really wasn't that big of a deal six years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we could kind of do a virtual home visit. And, and, and see how they're doing and, and see if we can, you know, electronically prescribe, maybe if we can get access to their electronic record, I'd be able to get some information. Sometimes there's a nurse or a care staff or uh, a direct care professional available at the bedside that we can, you know, get some information from. And many times uh, our patients will be able to just give the history themselves and, and, and explain to them what's explain to us what's going on. So like, let's, Let's try it out. So we, we kind of built something um, internally, and uh, we uh, started actually um, with uh, the geriatric population in uh, nursing homes uh, to see how that would work. And um, we, we worked with the local nursing home, did it for free, didn't really charge anything, didn't bill insurance companies, just to see if this would actually make a difference and if it would work. And it did. And we ran into somebody from uh, downstate New York uh, that, that runs a group of homes in uh, with the Cerebral Palsy Association. Yep. And, and she was like, I can get you into a few of my homes here and see if ICFs and see if they actually, if you guys can make a difference, you know? Yep. And we did, and we started small, two, two ICFs, Staten Island, New York. Um, and we started to see that we were able to save a lot of patients um, the heartache of going to the hospital. And, and more, just as important, it also prevents, uh, um, you know, our patients from being uh, affected by other communicable diseases. At that mm-hmm. time, there was no COVID, so nobody <laughs> could ever imagine such a thing but um but you know there were communicable diseases for sure you know yeah pneumonias and influenza and you name it um it definitely we saw that benefit but we also saw financial benefit for the 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 homes because the dsps would have to usually it's like one caregiver um that's with four or five people and if someone has to go to the hospital they generally need somebody to accompany that individual Mm -hmm. which means overtime which means somebody staying late which means that dsp missing dinner at home or missing a birthday party or whatever it is so not only does it impact the individual but it also impacts the caregivers significantly um and then getting some, getting a transport vehicle somebody driving the individual over so it's there's it's a snowballing effect and we saw the benefit and uh slowly started to expand and get the word out about what we're doing we went from having three doctors the three partners to having 30 um uh, physicians uh board certified physicians working for us uh we started in new york but have expanded to eight different states and currently uh we just finished calculating the numbers for 2020 and we saw over 20,000 visits uh over uh the past year and have kept about 89 percent of those individuals in their home uh safe without having going to the emergency department that are so those are some incredible statistics and a great story. Um, I don't want to interrupt you too much. I just want to say that everything you've said so far, I would corroborate from the from the perspective of Anderson Center for Autism. Um, and interesting that, yeah, six years ago, nobody was thinking about COVID. But thank goodness, um, you know, Station MD exists because uh, because the idea of. Um, all those trips to the ER, which sometimes are unavoidable and for our population typically have to do with self-dangerous uh, behaviors that accompany maybe an earache, a headache, a sinus infection, those things that if you can't communicate verbally that you're in pain, um, sometimes those behaviors can get so dangerous that you have to go somewhere. Um, being able to, I, I know you've put, you've put DSPs at ease, you've put individuals at ease, and you've certainly put their families that we haven't talked about also at ease 
folks who have family members living in, in group homes, nursing homes, uh, residential campuses like Anderson, um, one of the scariest times I think for families is when they're told that their child is being taken to the emergency room, um, especially for those families who can't get there to meet them. So I think that the, the impacts that you've had is phenomenal. And then add to that those stats, that is quite amazing. 89% have avoided having to go to the ER. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And we're super proud of that, you know, um, and just to just to add to add to that, um, I, you're absolutely right. The scariest moment for um, uh, parents or family members of an individual with disabilities that doesn't live with them that now has to go to the hospital um, is that call. Um, so what we have done is just like we're doing now on this Zoom call, you can have more than one person on a Zoom call. We've incorporated a capability so that family members can Zoom in as well. Um, and we do use a uh, very similar platform to this and basically just send them a link. They click on it and um, they're on. So it's myself, the family member, the individual, sometimes even the patient's nurse if they're not on site. Mm -hmm. And we're able to at least put them at ease. I can explain what's happening, why I think they need to go to the hospital. And the next step, which I think is really critical, is that as an emergency physician, I know what the receiving emergency physician wants to know. And I've been in the situation mm -hmm. where I just get a patient at my front door, zero information. And he's, like you said, hurting himself, injuring himself somehow because of some underlining medical issue. We don't have much information going on him. That may not be the case with Anderson, but there, there are a lot of situations. Yeah, no, it's, it's understandable. Happen. Yeah. So what we do is we communicate that information. The things that I'm worried about, I call the receiving facilities emergency physician and have that peer-to-peer, physician-to-physician -physician conversation. And also it allows that ER to prepare for an individual with a disability because they, they do have special requirements and needs. If we can get a special air, an area of the emergency department that's quieter, that's not as loud, it's not in the hall. We can kind of set that all up. I can't tell you that it happens all the time, but I can tell you 100% of the time that we send patients to the ER, we have that verbal communication and that warm handoff from doctor to doctor. And I think that makes a tremendous difference um, in, in the care that uh, the individuals will receive. I would agree with you. That touches a little bit on, on something that we do a lot of at Anderson through our consulting department, but it's, we call it autism supportive environments. So I, I hadn't thought about that aspect, but, um, but that sharing of information, because a lot of times in an ER, you're working so fast, right? And there's so much going on that you also really don't have time to sit down and interview three different people as the person's coming in. You sort of have to do that triage immediately. So I love the fact that you're encouraging um, uh, your counterparts in the, in, the, in the ER setting to just consider a couple of aspects which might make everybody's experience, including the doctors and the nurses and all the staff in the hospital that much easier. Um, and, and I can't tell you, I'll just reiterate again, what that does for the peace of mind of a family member, you know, a brother, a sister, a parent, um, and also again, the DSPs who are, it really become so much like family in these settings, just to know that, um, that there's sometimes it's those little things that make the biggest difference. So um, I love this. This overview is great. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I have a bunch of questions for you um, and, and want to hear some, some real life stories about uh, things that have impacted you personally in doing this. Sure. So Dr. Devin Unadkat from Station MD, this is one in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Alone, our reach is limited. No matter how great our intentions, on our own, we can only stretch so far. But at Rotary, we believe the right group of people working together can make our communities, our world, a better place. Rotary is a worldwide network of community volunteers dedicated to helping people in need. Learn more at rotary.org. 
rotary.org. Rotary. Humanity in motion. And now, 1 in 54 continues on 100.7 WHUD. This is a weekly community affairs program presented by the Anderson Center for Autism. Welcome back to 1 in 54, the weekly talk show on topic related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski from Anderson Center for Autism. And today I'm talking with Dr. Devin Unatkat, who is the chief medical officer from Station MD. And uh, thank you so much for the first half of the show where you gave a, a beautiful overview of sort of the, the rationale, the, the founding uh, early days, six years ago on or about of, of Station MD, um, the, the clear, uh, you know, not knowing about the, uh, the, uh, the pandemic coming at us, but certainly glad that, uh, that there are these services available to so many now uh, during this difficult time. Um, and also the impact. I mean, I'm just going to reiterate this for, for anybody who might have missed that at the end. You've gone from thir- three doctors who founded uh, Station MD to 30 board certified physicians, all of whom I think have some level of expertise and interest in working with a developmentally disabled, intellectually disabled um, population. Uh, and then you're serving eight states and you've had 20,000 visits in the last year. And the most amazing thing to me is 89% of those visits have led to the individual being able to remain at home and get better there. I, I I don't know anywhere else I can boast those kinds of statistics. That's quite amazing. So, um, so I, now I have some, I've sort of a different layer of questioning. I, I have, I'm curious about your recruitment of physicians and whether you're finding that, was it easy to grow from three to 30? Do you have physicians who are really excited about this type of of um of medical practice is it is it challenge do you find yourself having to kind of really pull people in and say no it's really going to be okay it really makes sense you can have confidence in it what's that all like that's actually a really good question i haven't been asked that question but we've been talking about that ever since we started we've always thought that it would be difficult to recruit physicians who can't touch a patient. I mean, that's the core of our practice, of our, of our profession. Right? Yeah, yeah, is touching somebody. But surprisingly, I think what we were thinking when we started Station MD wasn't a unique thought in, in many physicians' minds. You know, with all the ability to do tests, the technology that's out there, visualization is key. And, um, you know, and, and yes, you can't touch and you can't do everything via telemedicine, mm-hmm. but you can do a majority of things that we generally do in person. And we thought that we'd have to sell the practice, you know, but mm-hmm. we we generally don't. Uh, we have a, a, a line of CVs ready for us uh, if we needed to expand because physicians are realizing that you can provide high quality care over the internet in the comfort of your own home um, and still be able to be impactful, you know, and, and make a difference and um, and take care of people who otherwise would not get the level of care that I think we're able to provide. You know, if over the first few months, the reason why we kind of like stayed small and didn't want to expand too fast was because we needed to prove it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Can we do this right? You know, we don't want to do something that's not going to provide a benefit or of any value. And I think when they see that and they see how simple of a structure it is and the support that we get and how valuable of a service it is, it's, it's not that difficult to, to find physicians, you know, but the, you know, again, if we get a, a bunch of physicians and, uh, what our our goal is to find the physician that has an interest that has a desire to take care of 
patients with intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. Obviously, people who have already been trained in taking care of individual disabilities would be our priority, but we also focus on training our physicians to make sure that they're at the level of understanding uh, uh, the special needs of, of, of our community and how um, how our community functions. Even the words, D, I mean, the, the, the letters DSP, it's not a common thing in the medical world, understanding what that is, what an ICF yeah. is, what a group home is. We have actually a training module, uh, a series of seven lectures that we give all of our physicians. So they have an understanding of the basic terminology and mm -hmm. uh, and, and and how things are, are, are organized in, in this world, um, but also it's ongoing medical education on the unique uh, medical needs for our community. I love that. And I and I just want to thank you for, for prioritizing that because um, that goes a long way also, again, with the sort of peace of mind, the trust that you need to establish between a physician and a patient and their caregiver as quickly as possible, especially in an acute situation. The last thing that anybody who works in a group home, runs a group home, has their child in a group home wants to hear is, what's that? Uh -huh. Um, it just doesn't start things off on the right mm -hmm. foot. Um, so, so I think that that's really great that you've prioritized that. And, and that leads me to another question. Um, you know, this is not my background, um, so I'm going to get the terminology wrong. But I, I do know just from family experiences over the years that sometimes when an individual is, is, um, is presenting some symptoms that are maybe confusing, and don't all add up and there's no immediate, you know, I think I know what this is. I think we can treat this or I, you know, I know you have to go here to the specialist. Do you have any system in place amongst your 30 physicians where there's, right, you know, an opportunity to sort of check in with each other or present a patient's symptoms to a group of other station MD doctors for like discussion and maybe some um, some collaboration, put your heads together. Do you do you ever do that? Yeah, we do. We do that. And it, it's interesting. So part of our structure is we have a, 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 anywhere between one to three physicians on at a time. Mm -hmm. And then we have a physician on as backup. Okay. So um, backup, meaning exactly what you're talking about, clinical questions that may require a second opinion or thought that, um, you know, maybe the first physician wasn't thinking about. Um, so at any given time, there's another physician on always that you can bounce ideas off of, mm -hmm. but also there's this person we call clinical on call. So so um, I was clinical on call yesterday. And if one of my clinicians needed some guidance or there was a question, they certainly would reach out to me. And I can always simply zoom on and jump on the call and also, hey, what do you think about this rash? I could look at the rash and see what it is. That's just a simple example. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so we have that built into our workflow. And uh, and that seems to be working really well. And, and I think that's another reason why some of the physicians like to come work with us is because there's that collegiality, camaraderie. We kind of lean on each other, um, you know, because I, we don't know everything uh, and we don't want to make a mistake. So, um, so we try oh, to bounce ideas off of each other. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I, and I also would think that for most physicians, um, when you're working more sort of in a remote setting and more, you know, telemedicine type of thing, knowing that you're part of a, you're still part of a group of, of professionals um, probably feels good and, and maybe leads to, to longer retention for, for those physicians. So that's wonderful. Um, we are, we are, um, we only have about four minutes left in the show. I'd love to give you the opportunity if you have one. I didn't really prep you for this, but if you have an anecdote, if you had a personal experience either in the early stages or more recently where you just were sort of reminded about why you started Station MD and what an impact it's having that you'd love to share, you can certainly leave out any identifying information. But, um, but do you have anything that I would love to give our listeners a, a sense of why you keep doing what you do? Yeah, I, I definitely can. And, and I get that question often. So I have this case in my mind that I always like to share because it's, it's so telling um, of, of, of what we do. So 
in our early stages, we, like I said, we're covering two ICFs. Um, th- these are individuals that are sicker, um, that either have, you know, they definitely have a, a developmental or, or intellectual disabilities or both. And in addition to that, they have complex medical conditions like needing hemodialysis. They have chronic Foley's in, G-tubes in. Um, so, so they were on the sicker end. And we got a call one night. It was around 930 at night. And uh, it was a pretty scary call. The nurse that was on. So these facilities have nurses on 24-7 called and said, uh, we have a patient who I think has a, an, an intra-abdominal catastrophe. We think something really bad is happening. Uh, the belly is distended. Uh, he, uh, he's crying. He never cries. Um, he's nonverbal, but he never cries. Um, and uh, the blood pressure is through the roof. The heart rate is so high. Um, I think I have to go to the hospital. Um, I'm going to call 911. So I said, hold on. Before you call 911, just give me three minutes. You know, the vital signs are, are enough, okay enough for me to say, give me three minutes. Let me just look at the um, look at the patient via the camera. We turned it on. It's that fast, 30 seconds. You can actually get the thing going. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at the individual and I saw his belly was, was distended. Um, so I asked them to just quickly disrobe and let me just take a quick look and see what's happening. Uh, I asked the nurse to palpate the abdomen to feel and see where it was most distended. And then I was able to notice that the patient had a Foley catheter in place. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, let's take a look at the bag and see what's draining out of the catheter. And that catheter was empty. There was nothing in there. So commonly we see this in the emergency department setting where the Foley catheter gets clogged. It's just not draining properly. Now the bladder starts filling with urine and oh. that is very uncomfortable. Just think about the last time you had to pee really bad, right. you know, it hurts. Yeah. And, and if you can't communicate, you can't communicate that. He could not verbally communicate it. So his vital signs were telling, his belly was telling us, and he was crying. That's different from what this person's baseline was. So I said, when was the last time urine, you saw urine in the bag? And she looked through her log and she's like, oh, this urine hasn't been draining for hours, uh, at least 12 hours. So oh. I was like, okay, so this is, this is the problem. So we know that there's an obstruction here. So she, she got um, a syringe and it is a common practice. You just flush out the catheter. So whatever was blocking the port where urine goes into was released. And within three minutes, there was a liter and a half of urine in that bag. And that belly went from like a nine month pregnant woman to a skinny person. He stopped crying. Um, He felt better. We repeated his vital signs. His vital signs were rock solid, stable. (laughs) It was normal. We sent the urine off for um, analysis. Found he actually had a urine infection, started him on antibiotics. We checked back in three days later, doing perfectly fine, catheter draining normally. I don't know. In my mind, I thought that was a great example of how something that starts off very in a, in a very panic situation where the nurse is just, I have to send this person to the hospital. Right. We were able to systematically figure out what was wrong, reverse it, see the benefit, and then actually long-term kind of say, oh, look, the infection is treated. He's doing better. He's back to baseline. Right. So, and the whole time, that in addition to how uncomfortable he was, a trip in, a, in, an, emergency, in, a, in an ambulance to an emergency room would have been terribly more uncomfortable. Um, that's a great story. I think that it really does exemplify the fact that, you know, you're, you're quick acting, um, the, the, the nurse felt comfortable knowing, you know, that it was okay to sort of give a couple minutes and check some things, um, had the information in front of her to share with you. And then of course, the best thing is that the individual was, uh, feeling better so quickly. So, um, I want to encourage our listeners to check out station MD online at stationmd.com. I think that's where you can find probably the States that you serve and more information about uh, all the things we touched on today. Um, again, representing the Anderson Center for Autism. I just want to thank you on behalf of all of the families 
and uh, the many individuals who've used your services already because really the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and, and, and we appreciate that you join us in fulfilling our mission, which is to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. One of the ways that we can do that is to look for all the ways to keep our individuals comfortable and healthy um, and, and as stress and anxiety free as possible. So, so really appreciate the partnership and for your information today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and I'm happy to come back on and, and have a further conversation because I think there's so much to share about Station MD and uh, the practice of uh, medicine via telemedicine um, for individuals with disabilities. Fantastic. Well, I know um, I know there's a lot of interest from from people I talk to who have children um, who are wondering, you know, if Station MD or if telemedicine would be something more appropriate for their children as opposed to adults or only adults. So maybe in the future we can have a conversation about that. In the meantime, I want to thank you for your time and for everything you're doing. Um, Dr. Devin Unadkat, the Chief Medical Officer from Station MD. Remember, go visit stationmd.com for more information. And thank you so much. This is One in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozens. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 54, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 